Hello and welcome to the Victorian Gas Lamp, the podcast shining a warm light on the 19th century and most notably throughout the reign of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. Episode 46 The King of Men Writing podcast episodes takes a lot of time reading and almost as much writing. I think by now those of you that have listened to a few episodes have realised I like making a story out of whatever I'm writing. Sure, I could just write the facts and probably be done in a few minutes. But honestly, where is the fun in that? Which leads me to plead your indulgence that, once again, I'm going to be starting outside the 19th century and begin with the 18th. Only because I love the background and it just goes to show that sometimes it isn't just one person that does amazing things, but it could be quite possibly genetic. John Byron was born in 1723 and by the end of his naval career he would be a vice-admiral. He had joined at the age of just 14 and would serve for over 50 years. In 1740 he was a midshipman amongst the eight ships of George Anson in a circumnavigation of the world, the intention of which was to basically pick fights with the Spanish Empire wherever they found them. The insanely fascinating story of how, by the time Anson got home, is where you're going to get the facts. Anson only had 188 of his original 1,854 crew, only had one ship and an absolute truckload of gold. In the time he was away, he made 700 pounds in wages but he made 91,000 from the gold, setting him up for life and the peerage that came later on. Even the lowliest seaman made 20 years pay in his bonus from, well, actually surviving. But John was on one of these ships, the HMS Wagner, and that was wrecked off the coast of Chile. Making their way in a lifeboat up the coast, they met some Spanish who treated them well and eventually they managed to get a French ship back to England. Trust me, I've condensed a Netflix series right there. It'd be amazing. John Byron was a titled man, which would have helped his promotions, I'm sure. He was, after all, the fifth Baron Byron. He would later go on to become a governor of Newfoundland, and as a Commodore, he would eventually circumnavigate the world with his own fleet. He also married his first cousin, Sophia, and their oldest son was also John. And where John Sr. was known as Foulweather Jack because of his misfortune with weather on the high seas, Jack Jr., soon to be the sixth Baron Byron, was known as Mad Jack. Ominous, I know. Now, Captain John Mad Jack Byron had been born in 1757 and was dead by 34. He had joined the Coldstream Guards and fought in the American Revolution. And back home, he began an affair with Amelia Osborne right up until they were caught in bed by one of her husband's servants. And I think we can all agree that's got to be awkward. 
Amelia's husband, the fifth Duke of Leeds, filed for adultery and got the divorce. And the next year, John Jr., Mad Jack, married Amelia. At the time of their wedding, Amelia's divorce was only weeks old and she was eight months pregnant. Amelia and John went on to have three children, but only his daughter Augusta survived to adulthood. And while we're on the sad stuff, Amelia died in 1784. Mad Jack then married Catherine Gordon, who was a rich woman from Aberdeenshire in 1785. Yes, I agree. Some people do move on pretty fast. Now, they had one son, George Gordon Byron, who was born on the 22nd of January, 1788, which is almost a birthday for him, coming up by the time this podcast drops. Amelia chose the name after her father, George, who was a direct descendant of James I of England, or James VI, if you're in Scotland. At this point, Jack Jr. was basically spending all of his wife's money and then flew the coop, abandoning this family, and he went to France and lived with his sister. And in France, he partied like George IV later would, blowing his money on parties, the theatre, and of course, courtesans. He died, it seems from tuberculosis, in 1798 when his son was 10. And it was his son in the obituary that he wrote, who called his father Mad Jack. Thus the name had stuck. Because it is the son, George Gordon Byron, aka Lord Byron, who we're here to talk about. Come on, you know that was interesting. Plus, Netflix series. Lord Byron and his mother had what could be called a confrontational relationship. Catherine would spoil George, or else swing towards being stubborn in her rules. She also drank a lot and had put on a lot of weight. George was revolted by her drinking and would mock her, and when Catherine tried to catch him to punish the boy, he would simply run away, knowing that she couldn't catch him. George had been born with a deformed right foot, and once in a fit of pique, his mother once referred to him as a lame brat. Ouch. George started his schooling at Aberdeen Grammar School, but then when he was 10, his mother moved back to Dulwich in England. His education there was erratic as his mother would pull him out and then she'd let him go back. So it might come as no surprise that he had a lack of self-discipline and neglected his studies. He was a boy who followed his feelings is probably the best way I could describe him. George was known to go crazy when exercising and push too hard, possibly as a compensation for having a deformed foot. George personally described himself as passionate, and it extended beyond the sports field. While at school, he fell in love with one Mary Chatworth, and it was because of her that in 1803 he refused to return to school. In his later memoirs, George would describe Mary as the woman that awakened his, quote, adult sexual feelings. And just for the record, he was 16 at the time, in case you're curious, so it's kind of not that weird. Nothing really came from it, though, as he did return to school the next year. 
This time, school was a better experience for George, and he settled down somewhat, and he made some friendships that would last far beyond his academic years. In one of his earliest works from 1806, appropriately called Childish Recollections, George wrote that he was, quote, conscious of sexual differences that may in the end make England untenable. End quote. That statement might become more clear when you realise that George had a short-lived relationship with a younger student and that during this time, homosexuality was illegal in the United Kingdom. 1805 saw George studying at Trinity College in Cambridge. It was here that he came to meet John Edelston. John was a younger man than George and it appears that they had a relationship. But these were different times and you should know that if you were charged with homosexuality, you could be hanged. George later described John thus. His voice first attracted my attention. His countenance fixed it and his manners attached me to him forever. The salacious details of whatever their relationship was, however, are just speculation. Some believe that it was physical. Others also think that because of the times, it was more an emotional and a personal connection that they both felt but never acted upon. As I said, these were precarious times after all. 1809 saw George leave England for the continent, and best guess is he fled because of some indiscretion that was going to come to light. That said, George travelling the continent like this was something I have mentioned before in the podcast. It was known as the Grand Tour, and was the gallivanting escapades of the idle rich kids around Europe. I think it was back in episode 9 when I was talking about the clothes that men wore and I talked about Yankee Doodle Dandy and how he stuck a feather in his hat and called it macaroni, which was the pasta de jour and became a synonym for a rich, idle, fashionable dilettante. Because of Napoleon causing chaos all over Europe, George couldn't travel around like most of the rich on their grand tour, so he started off in Portugal where apparently most of his education in Portuguese was related to learning swear words. And I do have to digress here because I would be the absolute same. Going to school here in Australia, you really only had English as your language. Your schooling might teach you another, but it was more an exotic talent here rather than how it is in Europe where you might learn another fluently because it was only an hour's drive away. And I can absolutely guarantee that the first thing we asked the new kid who came from somewhere with a different language was how to drop the F word. By the time I was 18, I could do it in 12 different languages and get my face slapped by a woman in four more. <laughs> See, multiculturalism, it actually really is fun. Of course, it's juvenile, but in my defense, I was at the time a juvenile. Moving on. So George was learning to swear in Portuguese and from there travelled through to the Mediterranean. While in southern Europe and Turkey, it appears George had a number of affairs, including a much younger Niccolo Girard, who taught him Italian. He returned to England in 1811, which turned out to be a really bad year for him. Firstly, George had to return because his mother had passed. 
and regardless of his complicated relationship with her, she was still his mum and he was understandably upset. And on top of this, he learnt from John Edelston's sister that at only 21, John too had died of consumption. George went on to write a series of wonderful poems in which, if you know what you're reading, are a set of eulogies to his love for John. From there he went on to have more works published, including work that in 1812 saw him describing himself as, quote, I awoke one morning and found myself famous. Now, I am sure many of you have already an understanding of how poets were treated during the Victorian era. But for those that don't, well, back in the day, poets were kind of a big deal. Certainly, authors of novels could get famous, and there was of course music, but it was often outside the economic ability of the masses to get access to. I mean, you're hardly going to be living in the East End and discussing which symphony of Beethoven's was better. But mass printing meant that it was cheap to buy printed works, so poetry could be readily available. Think of it as the pop-slash-folk-slash-indie music of the day. Poets might talk about social injustice, love, heartbreak, the beauty of the world around them, all the types of things that you might hear today from someone like Ed Sheeran, John Mayer, or Taylor Swift. Even a more rock-orientated artist like Pink, sorry, big fan here, I do confess, would have been a poet back in the day. Sure, you can change some of the wording, but the emotions are right there in the words. You punched a hole in the wall and I framed it. I wish I could feel things like you. Everyone's chasing that holy feeling. And if we don't stay later, we'll blow out. Blow out. And I have to give myself credit right there for putting pink into a Victorian history podcast. Well done, me. But getting back on track, poets were often well-known and lauded amongst the public. Well, the public that could read anyway. But that said, people would memorise poems and recite them to their friends, kind of like everyone knowing the lyrics to a song. Hey, you took your entertainment where you could find it, and there were no mobile phones. Good times. So Lord Byron was kind of a big deal at this point. He was really hitting his straps creatively, and over the next few years wrote some of his best work. He was being invited to parties, asked to join exclusive clubs, and hanging out in the best salons. And it was at this time in 1812 that he began an affair with one Lady Carolyn Lamb. And it was Lady Carolyn that, in history now, famously called him, quote, Mad, bad, and dangerous to know. End quote. The affair lasted only a few months, and then he broke it off. By now it had become common knowledge that it had been going on, and her husband, William Lamb, took her off to Ireland for a time. Lord Byron and Lady Caroline continued to correspond during this time, but when she returned to England in 1813, he made it clear that they weren't going to be together again. 
Lady Caroline continued trying more and more publicly to reconcile with George until things got to the point at a dinner party held in honour of the Duke of Wellington. It was here that a George publicly insulted her, whereupon Lady Caroline smashed a wine glass and slashed her wrists. It appears that this was more for the attention rather than any serious intention of self-harm, but I'm sure, as you can imagine, the scandalous news this created amongst the social set of the time. Lord Byron later referred to this act of Lady Caroline as performing the dagger scene from Macbeth. A little harsh. But Lady Caroline was a writer of some note during this time as well, and both of their published works during this time make clear, if you know the history behind it all, that they are referring to each other. I think the married lambs probably deserve a podcast all of their own, as it makes this episode overly complicated to go into all the details. I'll do that another time. But for the sake of trivia, Lady Caroline's husband, William, would go on to be Prime Minister, preceded by the Earl Grey and succeeded by the Duke of Wellington. So there's some impressive people right there. Caroline's husband, William, was the second Viscount Melbourne, and it is for him that my hometown is named. So there you go. So from all that drama, well, season two of the Netflix series would still have plenty of juicy material. Because as we get into the year 1813, Lord Byron was looking at marriage with the hopefully soon to be rich because of her uncle, Annabella Milbank. Lord Byron also reconnected with his half-sister Augusta Lee. You might remember her from season one of the show as the only surviving daughter from his father's marriage to Amelia. And according to gossip of the time, they reconnected in the biblical sense as Augusta had a daughter, Medora, in 1814. With rumours like that and mounting debts, Lord Byron did marry Annabella and they had a daughter, Ada, in 1815. But his personal life was an absolute train wreck by this point. Married to a woman because of money, obsessed with his half-sister Augusta, and also carrying on an affair with other women, most notably actress Charlotte Marden, Lord Byron had his wife filing for separation in 1816, saying that he was insane. Under so much pressure, he fled England, and he would never return. And for more trivia, well, his daughter Ada would go on to marry William King, who would later be made Earl, and her title made her Countess of Lovelace. All titles aside, Ada was a capital B brilliant mathematician. She's credited as creating the first algorithm, and thus is seen as the first computer programmer. So keep that one in your pocket for next time that you have to impress someone with weird knowledge. Okay, fine, I will move on. Lord Byron headed off to the continent and travelled through Belgium. 
By 1816, he was staying at Lake Geneva, and it was here that he made friends with Percy Shelley and Mary Godwin. Mary would go on to marry Shelley, but for the moment they were, as we call it now, in a relationship. Mary's stepsister was also there. Her name was Claire Claremont, and she was a woman that Byron had had an affair with back in London. The convoluted relationships of the Victorian idol rich do mean I get to refer constantly to other episodes. So go back to episode 8 here for more of what was happening at this time. But suffice to say for now, that's while on this holiday, the weather was appalling and left them all stuck indoors with little to do. So writing stories to entertain each other, it was here that Mary Goodwin, soon to be Mary Shelley, wrote a little classic you might have heard of, Taylor Frankenstein. With such a wintry summer, it might come as no surprise that, come winter, Byron headed off to Venice. It was here that he had an affair with Mariana Sagatti, the woman who owned his lodging house, and then he moved on to the younger Margarita Cogni. Yes, he was clearly a busy man. Among all this bed-hopping, he found an Armenian monastic order in Venice and became fascinated with their language and culture. Byron dived deep into this new fascination and not only learnt the language but was instrumental in the creation of an Armenian English dictionary. After travelling to Rome, he returned to Venice where he began work on the classic Don Juan. This was a poem in what was known as the epic style which means it was a lengthy work based on some sort of hero. Don Juan, the Spanish legendary lover of women, was portrayed in Byron's work as a victim of circumstance and a victim in the seductions. This combined with the satirical references to famous people of the day made it positively scandalous. I mean, he even dedicated the work to Britain's poet laureate, Robert Southey, who was an artistic rifle. And putting the line in stanza three said, quote, You Bob are rather insolent, you know. That kind of leaves no speculation to it, does it? While writing this work, Byron also met the Countess Guccioli. Although married and only 18 to his about 31, she fell in love with him, and it was for this reason he continued living in the area through to 1821. They first met just three days after she was married, and before you get all icky about the age gap of these two, well, her diplomat husband was, and I'm not stuttering here, 50 years older than her. So she either likes older men or married for advantage. Take your pick. That said, Byron later wrote to the Countess that she had said that he, Byron, understands from her that he was her first love and that she was his last passion. Byron also wrote to a friend that the Countess had actually mailed him some of her pubic hair, which was apparently an indication that she was willing to have an affair. I guess that's the 19th century equivalent of liking all your social media posts. Different times, it's why we love history. <laughs> Moving on, it was during this time also that Byron was visited by friends, including Percy Shelley. Percy gives us an idea of the sort of house that Byron was living in at the time. 
Clearly, Byron had some serious funds behind him because we're told that he didn't get up until 2 in the afternoon. They would then go horse riding for a couple of hours before returning to the house to talk until about 6 in the morning. Also, his house had animals roaming all through it. Can you imagine living in a place that had eight large dogs, three monkeys, five cats, an eagle, a crow, a falcon, as well as five peacocks, two guinea hens, and an Egyptian crane? It was only the ten horses that weren't allowed inside. So it's good to see that Byron had standards. Now, when his countess-slash-mistress moved to Pisa in 1821, Byron followed. By now, they were living together and also moved to Genoa together. And then, in 1823, things got, well, more complicated. The countess's father was an Italian nationalist that, long story short, got exiled for plotting against the Austrian Empire. His exile was only to be rescinded if she returned to her politically powerful 50 years older husband. Although devastated to lose Byron, she did so. Equally shattered, Byron left for Greece. Locals and international supporters had been soliciting for his support and he finally decided this was the time. To give you some idea of his popularity in the European world at this time, Multiple factions were all advocating for Grecian independence and they were trying to bring him on board to support their group. And during this time and through until 1864, the Grecian Isles were under British rule. So having someone like Lord Byron on your side meant a lot. And he apparently did genuinely support the cause. Byron spent £4,000 of his own money refitting the Greek Navy and then he also gave another £6,000 to men who had not been paid by the Greek government for their service. But the latter were basically whiny mercenaries who kept asking for more money until Byron got to the point where he told them they could all go home. This had to be annoying to say the least. Byron was committed to their independence. He had even sold his home back in England to raise money, at an amount that would be millions in today's money. But word got out about this, and all sorts of people kept hassling him for funds. The whole thing became a mess politically, and frustrated Byron no end. Factions kept fighting with each other, rather than against the Ottoman Empire. Even while all this was happening, Byron was living in Missoloni, it was here that he adopted a nine-year-old Turkish Muslim girl called Hato. An orphan whose parents had been killed by Greeks, Hato was then sent to Kefalonia and safety. As a Muslim Turk, she was in literally grave danger, and so Byron saved her as best he could and got her out of the area. So props right there to Lord Byron for doing something nice. By now it was 1824 and Byron and others were planning an attack on the Turks. But on February 15th, Byron fell ill. Naturally for the time, bloodletting, that is literally making you bleed in the hope it would get rid of those ill humours in your body, was tried. But all that did was make it worse. Byron did recover to some extent, but upon contracting a fever, he died on April 19th of 1824. 
for everything I have covered here, he was just 36 years old. He might not have won the war for Greek independence, but became recognised for helping both Christian and Muslim victims of the war. And to my way of thinking, that's a pretty good epitaph. Rumour has it that his heart remained at Missaloni, but no one really knows. Byron had asked not to be returned to England, but his fame meant otherwise. Westminster Abbey refused to have him buried there for his, quote, questionable morality. Yeah, go with that. To huge crowds, he was laid in state for two days and was then buried at the Church of St. Mary Magdalene in Nottinghamshire. The King of Greece gave a marble slab which was laid upon his grave, and his daughter Ada would later be buried beside him. It was only in 1969 that a memorial was placed to him in Westminster Abbey. This had been lobbied for since 1907. And since 2008, the 19th of April has been known as Byron's Day in Greece. Now, for the aficionados of Byron's works, I'm sorry to disappoint, but I clearly haven't covered any of his works in anything more than the briefest of ways. As I said at the beginning of this episode, I aim more for telling a story with trivia and the fun of the background. Plus, I have no qualification whatsoever in critiquing seminal works of the English language. But by all means, check out his works. They have been enormously influential as one of the leaders of the Romantic literary movement. What has become known as the Byronic hero is the template for a brooding dark man that is nevertheless capable of great affection. Think of Heathcliff in Wuthering Heights. Edmund Dante in The Count of Monte Cristo, or Rochester in Jane Eyre. Well, they're all examples of Byronic heroes from writers such as Charlotte and Emily Bronte and Alexander Dumas. And as I think of it, you might even count a modern anti-hero like John Wick as a Byronic hero. I know serious literary scholars might argue otherwise, but think about it. Brooding, vengeful, yet capable of great love for both his wife and also, man's best friend. Just a dog. Vigo. Yeah. When Ellen died, I lost everything. Until that dog arrived on my doorstep. A final gift for my wife. In that moment, I received some semblance of hope. An opportunity to grieve on alone. And your son took that from me. Stole that from me. Killed that from me! People keep asking if I'm back, and I haven't really had an answer. But now, yeah, I'm thinking I'm back. So I'm crowing right now because I got Pink and John Wick into a Victorian-era podcast. Anyway, you could say that Byron was responsible for creating that literary bad boy that girls can't help but love. After all, Byron himself was mad, bad and dangerous to know. And on a final note, I'm on record about the complicated state of relationships during this time, which I guess isn't really different to what might be happening these days that we just don't know about. The Countess that was his last passion would go on to lead a long life, 
dying at the age of 72 in 1873. At a party in Paris in the 1860s, she met the friend of the American ambassador's wife who had asked her about being someone who had known the legendary Lord Byron. He had been the King of Poets, she had heard. The Countess replied, all those years later, that he was the King of Men. But as a last thought to leave you with, of all those poems that George wrote about John, none indicated to whom they were written to. But in 1974, another work was discovered. It was the only one he wrote that used a masculine gender talking of the beloved boy. John Edelston's name was written three times across the top of the work. And here endeth the episode. You can find me at victoriangaslamp.com. My contact details are on there as well. And you can follow me on Twitter at VicGaslamp. And more importantly, on Instagram, where I post historical facts and trivia as well as photos related to the episodes. I am at VictorianGaslamp, or one word, there as well. Thanks for listening and keep a lookout for new episodes. And as always, I'll see you next time under the gas lamp.